We start through Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 this morning. A thoughtful young man uh, pulled me aside as we began Romans way back in the beginning. And he said the equivalent of, Mouse, are you going through Romans 9, 10, and 11? Really? Are you going to get there? Well, here we are. And you're going to understand why he might have asked me that question. He, he treated me all, with all due respect. I don't mean to use mounts. And, uh, it wasn't disparagingly. Uh, in order to prepare our hearts to absorb the glories of what God reveals about himself here, it's important for us to read these verses in unison. It will be our habit as we go through this. If you find that your mind is troubled or you're provoked during the, these messages, I want you to remember that right in the middle of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a verse that we'll read together, which is, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know where that's found? Right in the middle of Romans 10 which is the middle of these three great chapters. Let's stand and read this in unison together. And this will be our habit as we go through these three chapters. Together. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hear the word of the Lord. Remember the word, this word of the Lord, as we go through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Thank you for standing and reading with me this morning. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Hear the word of the Lord. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Kent Hughes said, what is taught here is beyond our complete understanding. End of quote. Tom Wright, an Englishman, and we aren't given much to have a mental picture of a hedgehog, kind of like a, uh, oh, a porcupine-looking prickly thing uh, that's smaller than a groundhog but bigger than a chipmunk, uh, an, 
That would be an English rodent, I suppose. But Tom Wright, the Englishman, said this. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is as full of problems as a hedgehog is full of prickles. End of quote. When have you ever heard anyone preach through Romans 9, 10, and 11? Oh, sure, you might have heard a message on the doxology, the glorious finish of Romans 11, and God willing, we'll get there, and it is rich and full. Maybe you've heard a message on Romans 10, 13, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah, Eric, I've, I've, I've heard one there. Or maybe you've heard Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yeah, I've, I've heard one there. When have you heard a message on Romans 9 and then Romans 10 all the way through in Romans 11? That's where we are headed together. All scripture, the apostle Paul wrote, is profitable for us. And so we shall take the profit from these treasures. I want to tell you ahead of time that the mysteries and glories of God's electing grace are laid out in these chapters. Here we are confronted with the sovereign majesty of our Lord who chose us and acted so that we could be included in His grace. Here we are. Adam's children, sinful, undeserving, unconscious to God, desperately in need of him. What was God's response? He had already acted in grace to save us. The Apostle Paul is right with the first three words of Titus 3.5 that explains most of everything. He saved us. He, God, the actor, the action, saving, delivering us from the awful consequence of our sin. Us, the recipients of the action that God enacted. He saved us. If you just understand Mrs. Pallant's eighth grade grammar at Boone Station School and the force of those words, the subject acts upon the object, you understand the glorious gospel of grace described in the New Testament. To lay hold of such sovereign grace is to lay hold of life itself, of Christ himself, of hope embodied in him. Do we live with the assurance that Romans 9 and 10 and 11 offer as it fills our souls with peace? knowing the settled decree of a gracious God who reached for us in Jesus Christ to accomplish his will. Come with me to Romans chapter 9. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Now let me set the context. This is a new section in the book of Romans. We've gotten through Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and 8 ended on an epic peak. Now, you'll remember that early on, Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And then he adds this phrase at the end, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And here's a Jewish man who's writing this. Now, he picks back up on that earlier theme, and he's going to speak about the Jewish nation and salvation, 
and the decree of God in salvation through Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's facing an issue with this section of three chapters. Here's the issue. The Jewish nation, Abraham's children. Hey, wait a minute, Eric. Isn't that the nation which promised that the Messiah would come through them? If you open up the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 is a genealogy. It's written to Jewish people in the first century. And the genealogy starts with Abraham. By the way, if you open the genealogy in the book of Luke, written to the nations, the genealogy starts with Adam. It's fascinating. But here is Jesus who comes from, it's David's son from the lineage of David, from the family of Abraham. Well, all that's well and good if the Messiah was promised to come through the nation of Israel. What gives? Israel didn't receive the Messiah that came through their very line. And if God made these big promises to Abraham about the Messiah, God was going to use the Jewish nation to reveal himself to the world. Messiah was going to be Jewish. Jesus comes. They don't receive him. What does that say about God who promised all along that the Jewish nation was going to provide the Messiah for the world and be received? And it left some scratching their heads Paul tries to address that here. What further bedeviled folk thinking about the Jewish nation who didn't receive the Jewish Messiah, which was promised, is people who had stoned no interest in God, the Gentile world, some of them heard about Jesus, the Messiah, the first time, and they believed. And the Christian movement starts. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. I thought this was a Jewish thing that Jesus was the Messiah for the world. The Jews were deceived. They didn't receive him. And yet people that he wasn't even promised to, the Gentile world, they hear about Jesus and the church erupts on the day of Pentecost. It gets started with 3,000. And here we are 2,000 years later. What's the answer to that? Paul seeks to provide some of those answers with Romans 9, 10, and 11. Let me read the first 13 verses to you, which is where we are this morning. Before I read, here's the three directions we're going this morning together. Number one, in the first five verses, I want you to see Paul's heart. It's extraordinary. And he lays it bare right before us. Number two, I want us to look at the logic of chapter 9. If Paul's seeking to answer that conundrum of, hey, Eric, I thought Jesus, the Messiah, is Jewish. If he was the culmination of the promise to Abraham, how comes the Jews didn't go for him? When he came, what's that? And here's people he didn't even make promises to. And they're embracing him, and the church is getting to start. I don't get what's going on. He discusses what's going on in Romans 9, 10, and 11. I want to explain to you the logic of Romans 9 in the second point. And finally, ask you two questions before you leave, because there are two questions that bubble up and arise out of these 13 verses. Romans 9, 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Hear the word of the Lord. Now let's first look at Paul's heart. This may be the easiest thing to listen to this morning, unless it is so dissimilar than our hearts. And it will be hard to listen to as well. First, the people of God carry a yearning that others might come to know Jesus as Savior. The people of God carry a yearning that others might come to know Jesus as Savior. The Apostle Paul lays bare his heart. Remember, he's already said to the Jew first, here is Paul, a Jewish man, who yearns that his Jewish brothers and sisters would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. You know, he's called the Apostle to the Gentiles, but all the while he yearned that Jewish people would come to the Lord. Now, in verse 2, he stacks up adjectives describing the disposition of his heart. Ask about the disposition of your own heart. Number one, he describes it as enduring great sorrow. Now, it's interesting how he stacks this up. He doesn't say, my heart is sorrowful. He doesn't say, I'm experiencing sorrow. He says, I'm experiencing, and he uses this word. He layers it up. Great Sorrow. So, man, what, what's wrong with him? What's moving him? What's shaping his thinking? But it, 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 further, he says this, number two, unceasing anguish in my heart. So it's not just I'm experiencing sorrow. It's great sorrow. It's not just I'm experiencing sorrow and anguish. It's great sorrow and anguish. But that wasn't enough. He's saying, unceasing anguish. It wasn't episodic. It wasn't anguish that came and went, ebbed and flowed. It was a constant, unceasing burden that he carried around. Now, by the way, 
We can tell a lot about ourselves when we answer the question, what makes us really sorrowful and what gives us unceasing anguish of heart? How you answer those questions says a lot about who you are. How I answer those questions says a lot about who I am. So I ask you, what makes you sorrowful? What brings you to great sorrow? What brings us to unceasing anguish of heart? The number one concern for Paul was his people. Jewish people. He was grieved over their lack of response to Jesus Christ. That moved him. What kind of movement, Eric? Well, how about great sorrow and unceasing anguish of heart? He was concerned, verse 3, kinsmen according to the flesh. These are my people. This is my kin. They're kinsmen. I have Jewish blood. I have Abraham's blood too. Now notice the extent of his concern, the depth of his heart. Look at verse 3. Here's where he says the most extraordinary thing. He basically says, I wish I could go to hell for them and take their punishment so that they could be free and forgiven and know the living God. Now that's not possible, but it's very Christ-like. Isn't that just exactly what Jesus Christ did? That on the cross, he was willing to be separated from the Father, taking our guilt and penalty upon himself so that we could be free of it, taking our hell so that we could have the gift of righteousness in believing the gospel. Paul wanted to be condemned if it meant that Israel could be saved. This again is a page out of Jesus' playbook, Galatians 3.13. He became a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. So this is not a small thing. We know that each one of us and everyone we know, we will all live somewhere forever, according to the Bible. I talked to an evangelist once, and uh, he's, he's a wonderful man. And I said, uh, Don, look, tell me, how will I begin to discern in pastoral ministry where our people are in relation to sharing their faith. He said, well, find out how soul conscious they are. He said, what? You know, what does that even mean? He says, a person who carries around a consciousness of other people's souls. What do you mean? Well, when they're around their neighbors... Their workmates that they share cubicles with, their extended family, their circle of friends, as they engage people in commerce in the marketplace, as they share sports teams with others, as they interact with parents, friends, they carry around an awareness that these friends will live somewhere forever. If you get them there, and when they're with them, they're actually thinking about that 
or when they are not with them, they're actually thinking about that and praying about that. You'll begin to find a group of people who are like a radar pings for data asking God in an attractive way, in a winsome way, in a clear way for opportunities through words, gospel words, and works, gospel works, to communicate love and God's heart for them in Christ. Are we as a group soul conscious at Calvary? Do we carry around a sense of, oh, that person that I like, that neighbor that I talk to, they're going to live somewhere forever. Or that person who makes me mad, or that person that I find difficult to love, they're going to live somewhere forever. If we carry that around, it reshapes how we relate to each other. You can see that in Paul's heart. Church's burden to see people come to Christ. Our churches move by Yeah, here's a word, hell. That God is holy. That we are sinful. That we stand guilty before a God who is holy. And that apart from knowing Jesus Christ, we'll spend eternity in hell away from him. That's tragic. And doesn't have to be, it's the glory of Good Friday. Where God in Christ stepped into history, bore the guilt and penalty of our sin, and invites us home with him. Or to say it like Paul does, right in the Bible, right in these three chapters, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I encourage you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Are we one of those kinds of places that carry that around? Let's be that place at Calvary. Now, let's talk about the logic of chapter 9. Now, over the next three messages, we'll go over chapter 9. What happens in chapter 9 is the critics are throwing stuff up in Paul's face. And he's fending it off with scriptural reasoning. In fact, he takes a deep dive in these verses into the history of Abraham and Sarah and Abraham's failed project in the flesh waiting on the promise and he got with Sarah's handmaiden Hagar and had Ishmael but that wasn't that was a son of the flesh not a son of the promise there's an illusion there then he goes into Isaac and Rebekah and Rebekah conceives and has twins and before they're even born uh Isaac and Rebekah are told the older will serve the younger. Well, that wasn't the order, but it was the sovereign decision of the living God. And, that's, and so he's going to talk about that. He gets into the history. But he's going to answer three questions. Number one, and look at verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Here's the critic who says, If the Jews are not saved, hasn't God failed? Didn't he promise Abraham? What did what he do? Promise and not deliver? Uh, he must have failed. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, next week is B then, the three challenges to this. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Isn't God unfair to set it up like this in his glorious decrees? 
So that's what we'll look at in verses 14 through 18 next week. Is God fair in finding fault? Isn't he then unjust to condemn? Finally, look at verse 19. This will be in two weeks, God willing. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I am then not responsible for my response to Jesus. If it's like this, Eric, why does God still blame us if he made the choice? That'll be the third message here. But the first is, the first challenge is, if Jews are not saved, has God failed? Did God's plan go wrong? It seemed to start off so well with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the resuscitation of the promises. Was God unable to carry out his promises to Abraham? Is that what's going on? Has the plan gone awry? Did God fail to keep his promise? Is that what's going on? And what his answer is, now look, natural descent, Jewish blood, is not the way of salvation. You are not saved because you have Jewish blood you're saved because you believe the promises given to Abraham the Jewish father Uh, John Fleibel says if Abraham's faith is not in your hearts it will do no advantage that Abraham's blood is in your veins And, and justly so there's no religious heritage like Jewish people had. And, and he, lists, he gives the resume right here in verse 4. It's amazing when you think about it. They're Israelites. They've been adopted by God. They were stewards of the glory of God. Remember, the Shekinah glory lived in the tabernacle and in the temple in the holiest of holies. They were the ones that were recipients of the covenants. God's great covenant with Abraham. The Deuteronomic covenant, Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. Uh, the covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant uh, articulated by Jeremiah. The great promises from God are given to Israel. The giving of the law. It wasn't just any nation at Sinai. It was Abraham's people. I love that line. And Moses brought them out to meet God. It, literally, that's a line there. I love that. They were given the law. The worship, the Levitical approach to the Lord is extraordinary. That wasn't given to everybody. It was given to the Jewish people. What a pedigree. What a pedigree. They were given the promises. They had the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph. And from their race, the Messiah would come. Jesus is Jewish. And he breaks out into a doxology as he rehearses these things together. No argument can be made against the advantage that Abraham's people had before God. Oh, they have a rich religious resume. It's just that salvation is not based on a rich religious resume. And I want to talk to those of you who are growing up in a gospel home. Uh, This week, I went through a series of obituaries trying to find one, and I I was actually saddened when I went through it because, uh, first of all, people die every day in lots, and um, that's sad. Well, then, um, they die young, and that's sad. And then, it's sad to me 
that some of their deaths are tied to indulgences and habits of life as they have not feared God or stewarded the gift that he's given them. And, and they just pounded their bodies in the ground and die. And that, that's, that's sad. But I, I want you to know that if you're a, a, a younger person and you've grown up in a gospel home, I'm so happy for you. The privilege that you've been given to be introduced to Jesus Christ and to have a godly father or have a godly mother who yearns that you would embrace the gospel and go forward, that's a great treasure in life. Now, um, we need more than just a godly mother or godly father because that's not going to help you. There's an English phrase, riding on the coattails. It's about enjoying the success of someone else by proxy, riding on their coattails. Um, Aaron Burr, who some were introduced to that don't appreciate history too much in uh, you know, the great Hamilton musical, uh, a bit of a nasty character, uh, his grandfather was Jonathan Edwards, the colonial preacher, godly man. Uh, his father died young. His grandfather moved in, and then his grandfather, Jonathan Edwards, the first president of the College of New Jersey that came to be the uh, Princeton University. In fact, if you go to the Visitor Center at Princeton, uh, the Yellow House is the house where, right next to Nassau Hall is where Edwards died. Um, his mother, Aaron Burr's mother, in grief, then... Uh, her health was debilitated. Her husband had died. Her dad died. And so Aaron Burr loses his mom and dad. And for the rest of his life was kind of bent on, I've got to save myself. And how'd that work out? You know, he, he got on Blennerhassett Island there next to Marietta and was going to you know, start his own country and go down and, you know, take over. I mean, he's just a crazy, crazy guy. Uh, always pushing the edges. Shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in the duel. He gets ready to die. And he starts becoming concerned about his soul. And he said to himself, i got to help myself somehow. So he left specific instructions. And I've told you this before. Bury me at the foot of Jonathan Edwards. So if you go to Princeton, the president's cemetery there, you'll have the table stone for Edwards. And right at his feet is Aaron Burr, buried there. That's his grandson. Because he reasoned like this. Look, on the great day of resurrection, it may put me in better stead if I was at least around my godly grandfather when he takes flight. Now, it's a fascinating idea. At least one would have to give him a star for being creative, but it's just far from any sense of responsibly understanding the gospel. And if you're growing up in a gospel home and you are insensitive to Jesus Christ, that he is not important to you and you don't care, if somehow you, you, you are kind of accounting by proxy, well, at least, you know, i got to get half credit for uh, growing up in this home. It, it, it doesn't matter. See, the, the Jews were always telling people, remember John the Baptist, that fiery preacher who introduces Jesus? Uh, he's calling everybody to repent. Well, that, the, the, the Jewish people of the first century, that made him mad. So here's what they told him. He's out there preaching repentance. And basically they said, you know, stick it in your ear, John the Baptist. Why are you telling us that? 
And, uh, you know, we, we, we're Abraham's children. So John the Baptist looks at him in Matthew 3, 8 and says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. The same thing happens with Jesus as he pushes back in John 8, 39. They're saying, hey, what's really important is to have Jewish blood. It's just to be a part of the clan, to hang around the people of God, whatever that meant. And they were, they were counting on that. John 8, 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, your father did, which is an allusion to Satan, which, you know, had a way of deflating their uh, inflated view of how good they were before God because Abraham was their father. Look at verse 6. Did God fail on his promise to save Jewish people? Paul's answer is twofold. Number one, he says, go back and look at Abraham. Think of Abraham. Abraham was promised, through Isaac shall your offspring be. The son Ishmael came through the flesh, through Abraham's failure to believe the promise in using the handmaid of Sarah. Isaac was a son of promise. The messenger said, in a year we'll be back and Sarah will have a child. Sarah's and he are way past childbearing age. And Sarah heard it and laughed at the tent. A year later, she was holding Isaac, the promised son. So Abraham's family is an illustration that it is faith in the promise that brings us unto life and not a work of the flesh that we would do, a contrast between work of the flesh, Ishmael, faith in the promise, Isaac. But it goes on to Isaac's family. So Isaac grows up, God provides a wife, Rebekah. Verses 10 and 11 speak of Rebekah's pregnancy, and she has twins. While they are in the womb, before they are born and had done anything at all, God announces as a tribute to his electing grace, the older, verse 12, will serve the younger in order that God's purpose of election might continue, verse 11, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So here's a situation where the children have not been born, Verse 11, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad. Let me take you back to Greenan High School in Springfield, Ohio, and open gyms in the early to mid-70s. I I, as soon as I got toward my freshman year, I used to go to open gyms. Open gyms are where in the summertime you train, you play basketball, but it's not super organized. And so you go, a bunch of guys show up, and what there is to start out the evening is their sovereign election. And what happens is uh, the better players immediately sector off and they start the draft. And they, 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 they start picking people they want for their team. And they're not stupid. Uh, they want to pick the best players. So, you know, I'm just after eighth grade going there, showing up. 
And, um, you know, I'm over there on the line in the, the first round, the second round, the third round. You know, after the 20th round, finally, he said, all right, well, you got to be on somebody's team. Be, be on his team. And, uh, you know, so, so I was finally drafted because they, perceiving right, didn't have the skills that they wanted to be on their team. So I was drafted last because the draft is totally based on merit. But, and, and the, the best player when I was there was a guy who had graduated, gone to college, and he would come and train in the summer through these open gyms. His name was Brian Boisel. Well, uh, everybody wanted Brian Boisel to pick you to be on his team because he had a good team and the winner always stayed on the court so his teams always played all night till they just wanted to go home then they went home somebody else would play he'd beat everybody there well there I worked so hard through the years that there came a time when that first practice that first night I was drafted by Brian Boisel to be on his team and the reason I was drafted is because in his perception I had earned uh, 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 a level of skill that warranted him drafting me. So instead of the 20th round, I, I went in the fourth round to his team and all oh, the esteem that came to my heart, I thought, oh, this is so good. Brian Boisel thought me worthy of his team. Now, a lot of people view God's great plan of salvation similar to draft at Open Gym at Green and High School in the early to mid-70s. That somehow we are looked upon, we are esteemed, we are seen as having some worth and God chooses us. And, and, you know, you, you take Abraham. You look at Abraham and you say, well, oh, that's clear. I know why God didn't, didn't have Ishmael's people be the people of God because that was of the flesh and not of the promise. And therefore, oh, I, I know that it, it, it was uh, Isaac because that was faith in the promise that brought it about. That's, that's why God chose that. Then he gets to Rebekah. And the analogy is, look, these boys were not even born yet. Nobody made a decision based upon Esau's going to be a horrible rascal and Jacob's going to be an angel, so I'm going to pick Jake. No, they hadn't even been born yet. There's no decision. They hadn't done anything at all. 130 years ago, an English preacher in London named Spurgeon preached on this passage. He gets to this verse, and it is a stout, arresting verse. So then, I will have mercy... No, I'm sorry, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And a lady, that sent a lady off into the troposphere, and she accosted Spurgeon right afterwards, and she said to him, as she is upset, I can't understand why he hated Esau. Spurgeon looked at her and said, you know what, madam, that's not my problem. What I can't understand is why he loved Jacob. It's interesting. Here is the living God explaining it. And the crux is right here. The basis of the choice is not that they haven't been born, they haven't done anything good or bad. The choice had nothing to do with Jacob and merit. 
In fact, if you look at Jacob's life, he was a schemer and a crook and a cheat. And God chose him. By the way, by the grace of our Lord, he chose me a sinner, a lawbreaker, a defier of God's holiness. And he chose me by his grace to be in his family. Now then you ask, what does the word hate mean? What do you mean? He puts love and hate next to each other. They are contrasting in intensities, obviously. This is similar to what Jesus said, none of you can come to me and be my follower unless you hate your mother and father. Hate! Hate your mother and father? What in the world's that? I thought we were supposed to honor our father and mother. Yeah, we are. But in contrast to our devotion to our Lord, it looks as if it is hate. In contrast to the intense devotion we have to Jesus Christ and following him. It's about the choice of love making us an object of his affection. And we love, why? Because he first loved us. Now, we are to understand salvation as God's good grace shared with undeserving people. And that ought ravish our hearts. Now, I've already talked to you about the challenge of uh, B, the challenge of C, the next two weeks. So then that brings us to two questions, and we'll quit. Two questions follow Paul's central declarations that God's choice of us is not based on merit, but based on sovereign election. Question number one, do we embrace the God of the Bible, or would we rather embrace a God made to our liking? There's a Netflix documentary series right now on uh, a sport and personalities in the sport kind of going behind the scenes and filming stuff. And you get pictures of them that are different than, you know, the uh, image that you might have of them. And I knew that it concerned one figure that a friend of mine really likes. And so I said, hey, have you watched the Netflix series? Uh, Yeah, I watched the first one. Are you going to watch more of them? No. Why? I didn't like it. Why didn't you like it? Well, the image that I saw of the person that I like was different than the image that I thought he was. I thought he was this person, but going behind the scenes and having all that stuff filmed, I, I think, I don't want to watch anymore. I'm going to conclude that he's like who I thought he was rather than who he actually is. I'm not watching anymore that Netflix documentary. Now, as we read Romans 9, 10, and 11, do we embrace the God of the Bible or would we rather embrace a God made to our liking? God made us in his image. We are not to remake him in the image that we want. Now, by the way, I have no ax to grind. I'm trying to make sense out of the words of the text and what the text says. I don't have an agenda other than expositing the very words of God. Be a Berean. Is this what it says or not? And then allow what it says to shape our vision of God. That's the point. God is free to do whatever he will 
His will is always holy, right, and good, and without fault. You see, I think what's going to happen if we will let it, the text will do its work in our heart, and we'll lie next to Jonah on the beach in Nineveh in Jonah 2.10 after he's spit up by the fish, and we'll say what he said when he said, salvation is utterly and entirely and completely of the Lord. If he wants to save the Ninevites, you know what he's going to do? He's going to save the Ninevites because that's what he does. He's a saving God who lays his affection on folks. Finally, with what measure of gusto do we sing amazing grace? Um, In 1817, the tachometer was invented by a German guy. His name, Dietrich Ohlhorn. He invented it to measure the rotations and cycles of a motor and to measure the intensity of the revolution. When the truth of God's choice of us in Christ grips our hearts, a sense of our unworthiness and undeservingness in his presence dawns upon us. Gratitude swells, affection rises, and worship ceases to be a pedestrian, pro forma, yawn, habit experience, but a new opportunity to praise the one who before there was anything that existed chose us to be in Christ. Wow. The glories of Romans 9, 10, and 11 will increase our passion. By the way, how do you sing Amazing Grace? I mean, where's the needle on the tachometer of passion as you sing? Because there's a way of singing amazing grace that's kind of like you're humming, I did it my way under your breath with that great apostle Frank Sinatra. That is, you know, boy, God was really blessed to have me. I really bring a lot to him. Or there's also the crowd that the needle starts pumping. It's like amazing grace, yes, grace. Saved by grace through faith, Eric. I'm in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 person. I mean, I got to throw in some repentance and faith and and faithfulness. And of course, you know. So the needle goes kind of halfway up. Then there are those people who upon pondering Romans 9, 10, and 11 say, you know what? If it wasn't for God's choice ahead of time before there was anything, I would be as lost as I could be, as broken as I could be, as guilty as I could be, and as without hope as I could be, as despairing as I could be. But God in Christ changed that. And grace is not kind of or sort of. It's absolutely amazing and I'm so grateful for it so where's the needle on your tachometer this morning praise be to God for what he alone has given us in the person of his son Jesus Christ praise be to God for this here's the word unspeakable gift father these aren't the easiest words for Americans to ponder Our age is full of expressive individualism. A search for our rights and privileges. Oh God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. The depth of it, the width of it, the height of it. 
your pursuit of us, notwithstanding our sin. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, Lord, let... John Newton said, your grace taught our heart to fear. Help it to teach us to fear, to love, to praise, to live with joy. You've resolved our past in Jesus. You've secured our present in the peace that comes to us in knowing Christ. You settled our future before the world began. Our minds can't even wrap around that. Oh, Lord, use your word to make us holy, to make us joyful, to be people of grace who pass out the very thing we've been given in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name I pray.